Dave Denkert has been an Isla Mirada backcountry guide most of his life, and with many wins in the prestigious tournaments held there. The nuances of fishing for any species successfully are plethoric and complicated, and to be great at it with any consistency, you have to have refined your craft over decades of examining tidbits of your fish's habitat and behavior. Today, Denkert leads us down the proverbial rabbit hole, where he found the underlying details of his genius. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Well, the mill house is in the Dankert's house. Dave, how are you, buddy? Really good. How about you? Well, we're hanging, you know, considering that it's uh, February 10th, uh, 2022, and the cusp of my 69th <laughs> birthday. Doesn't that suck? Yeah. <laughs> so, people celebrate birthdays. I don't think I ever have. Yeah. But especially so once I got over the age of probably 50, you know. But anyway. How, how are you doing? You're 56. Doing... How's your body after all these years pushing that boat around? And it's uh, it's being okay, in the sun? but you feel it. Yeah. You know? Where do you feel it mostly? In my shoulders. Yeah. You know, that and my the grip on my hand. So. Do you have any tunnel carpal issues? No, just arthritis. So. I got trigger fingers, so sometimes I have to have those uh, those knuckles injected. Yeah. No, I've never had any injection. <laughs> I just put salve on or what have you for arthritis, but right, that get works through it. All right. Yeah. Well, I only know you from the tournaments and from what other people, you know, basically just through the grapevine, you're Snook and Redfish's worst enemy. I mean, you are Mr. Backcountry, but I don't really know much about your, you know, how you came down here, your early beginnings in Florida, if you want to just start, you know, how you came down to the Keys and your influences. Okay. I was born in November of 56. My parents moved down here in January of 57 and we moved to Miami. We were in the north part of Miami and... And in 1970, my dad got a hold of the mold for the 15-foot Challenger. He knew Al Fluger at the time. He knew Vic Dunaway and Bob Lewis. And between the three of them and my dad, they got the mold and they started producing the boats. Okay, so it cost my dad, at the time, $68 to build the boat and material. That was material cost of the boat. And when we got that boat, we put a 50-horse hand tiller Merc on it. And we started fishing Florida Bay. And that's how we got started back then. Before that, we just had a little whaler we'd run around. So I was 14 years old in 1970. We were fishing Florida Bay. And this incredible amount of fish that we had back there, redfish, snook, drum, you name it, sheep's head on all the different flats. I don't care if you went to Snakebite, you could come all the way over to Madeira, Terrapin, that whole area, even all the way over to um, Eagle Key Pass. All those flats had fish. And it, the neat thing about it was there was a lot of grass on the bottom back then, and there was a lot of food. You could see the flashing per, uh, pinfish on the bottom. You would see shrimp flipping during the day, and it was just—it wasn't hard to catch fish back then. And we had archaic tackle. We weren't—you didn't know what we were doing. But, but we, you didn't need anything fancy. No. And then in 1972, my dad would, would drive down from <clears> Miami to Hammer Point and drop my brother and I off on a Friday afternoon after school. And we would fish the boat all the way till Sunday afternoon. He would come back down and pick us up. And we'd sleep in the bottom of the boat because it was wow. completely open. And we only had 12 gallons of gas back then on a two-stroke motor, even though it was a 50. You know, it still burned some fuel. So we pulled everywhere. 
And we just pull for hours and hours and hours and learn the area and learn the fish and their habits and what have you. So that's how we got started. Very similar to Paul Tahir. I remember he told that story of his dad dropping him off on a Friday and picking him up on a Sunday. So you learn just from pushing your boat 16 feet at a time. Mm-hmm. And we could dive for lobster till 1978. And we would go to Twin Keys and Gopher Keys and what have you. And you, didn't, you couldn't imagine what the bottom of the channels looked like back then. There was big sponges, sea fans, everything. And you jumped the water. It's crystal clear. There was snapper, there was hogfish, there was grouper, there was everything in the bottom of those channels, and there was lobster everywhere. Wow. And we could, you know, it, it, it's just nothing like it is nowadays. You know, right. Right? Well, did you have a, a favorite fish of choice back then? Were you targeting anything we specific just, or most, just all fish? All fish, but mostly snook and redfish. We'd like that. Right. But we would also fish for tarpon. When my dad, you know, wasn't there, we'd, we'd go after tarpon. And there's tarpon everywhere in Florida Bay back then. Anywhere from 20 to 30 pounders to 100 pounders. Now, did we did you compete in any sports or was it all fishing, school and fishing? Just school and fishing. That was it. So that was my, until I got to about 18. Right. <laughs> you know, the girls came in the picture. But, you know, up to that time, I was just learning as much as I could about fishing, how fishing worked. And with Bob Lewis and Vic Dunaway and all those other guys. And we knew Chico back then, too. We met Chico. So we would get tips from them and how the fish and what, what lures to use and what they preferred. So we picked up little hints here. You know, Steve Huff started fishing in Miami as well. And I don't know if you heard his podcast, but he, he spoke about snook and going to all of his fishing spots on his bicycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he caught his first snook, you know. He raced home with the snook. He thought it was a striped bass because of the line down the side of the snook. He used to call, crawl down the manhole covers. You know, really dangerous stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's amazing how many fishermen um, that gravitated to the Keys that started out in the Miami area and, and Biscayne Bay. You know, Flip and Chico, Norman Duncan, all those guys. And still to this day, their favorite fish is the snook. Absolutely. Well, the one thing about the Keys is you have so much more to fish for in a smaller area. Right. Like Biscayne Bay, you have just generally just the bay and the outside edge where, you know, in the Keys, you can fish the ocean side, you can fish the bay side, you can run back into Florida Bay three, five, ten miles. You know, there's, there's so much opportunity there. Well, tell me about the day Linda had yesterday, your wife, with Richard Black. Yeah, they uh, they went out. They left the house at uh, 9 o'clock. They went out, <laughs> caught a couple of ballyhoo on the reef and then Emmy got, who's seven years old, she got about a 30 pound sail and they caught that one, got it to the leader, uh, went out, reset, and then Linda caught one about 60, 65 pounds. And then here comes the front. Right, <laughs> so they came but back that's in. only a few miles from the, a bonefish. You know, yeah, was, that, that was an hour and a half of fishing for right there. And yeah. you know, 40 minutes of each of that was, you know, reeling down the fish. Did the offshore world ever intrigue you, or were you just always shallow oh, water no. guy? When I was growing up, we we've deep jigged quite a bit, especially off of Ocean Reef and what have you. And we big, you know, three and four ounce jigs with glowworms back then. And what were you catching? Big muttons, kings, wahoo. I caught my first sailfish on ten pound spin out there. I caught a thirty two pound yellowfin on ten pound spin. You know, a lot of stuff. We were in South End Anglers too. That was a fishing club, so. We were always competing in that. And did you get involved with the the Met tournament, the Miami Met tournament? Yeah, I fished that quite a bit. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah, we won Tarpon Release Master. Linda won. Uh, my wife, she won a Woman's Master Angler. All different things. She had uh, two world record tunas with Trosset down there one day, and then we also went to Key West, and she got a world record mutton on six pound. So we we were always fishing the Met back then, having fun doing that. What's the biggest uh, tournament that you've won? Uh, probably the spring fly bonefish tournament, I would say. Who'd you win that with? Uh, Mitch Howell. Oh, so, Mitch. He's yeah. the, he and I went to battle. <laughs> yeah. He was, he's a great fisherman. He's very good. Yes. I mean, he can do the fly. He can do the spin stuff, you mm-hmm. know, the all tackle. Right. He's, he, he's he, out on the reef, uh, dropping jigs down on the reef well, right he, now. He's a complete angler and he, he stays real focused too. Right. So, which is nice. What's the difference between uh, guiding a single angler versus uh, two people, like in the Bay Bone? Um, it's just, I, I would think it would be it would be much really different. It it is because the way I fish with two anglers is completely different than the way I fish with one angler. Because when I have two people, we're doing a lot of blind casting, 
even like in the red bones, we're we're throwing jigs a lot. So you're covering water. We're covering a lot of water. Your lure's always in the water. Yeah, and we're catching bonefish on jigs. We're catching permit on jigs. I mean, we'll go to tarpon spots. If we can't get them on the fish, we'll go to the bait, like when we fish the slam. Whereas with one person, now you're actually executing your fish as far as sight casting, looking for them or what have you. You can still do it with two people, but you don't want the person rocking the boat or moving from side to side or doing anything right. that upsets the fish. Or I don't want a person casting, and then the second per angler casts on top of them or whatever blows the fish. So it's hard. Right. Now, do you like the backcountry more so than the front side? The yes. ocean side? I like I like You're king of the dark. I like the backcountry all king of quite the a dark. bit. King of the dark. <laughs> yeah. What what, uh, what do you like is what you know, what's so great about fishing back there? It's just the, the amount of areas that you can fish. And when I fish with Chico, it's funny with him because he says, Dave, I fish the same spots you fish, but you have spots within your spots. Right. And what I've done over the years is define the areas to very, very specific spots. And like there's, like you go across a flat and you think, oh, well, there's an eight inch hump there. That's not very much. That doesn't affect the fish. Well, the fish is only 10 inches high from bottom to top. Eight inches is a pretty good sized little mountain form. Right. That changes current, that changes flow, that changes everything. So if you know these little spots and potholes and ridges and edges of channels, you know that on a particular tide or a particular wind direction, these fish are going to show up here and they're going to enter the flat or exit the flat. And Interesting. You so you fish contour yeah, as much as I fish. fish. I fish a lot of contours and I love to go over there when there's no water. Like in the wintertime, dead low, low tide, so high lot, pressure. So a lot of the flats up and out of the water, so yes. you can study exactly. the contours. You can study the pools out there. You can study how where the birds are, because the birds will, will, will hang out in those pools, and they'll be feeding quite a bit. You know, I, there's more food there than there is back over here. And it so, concentrates the fish yes. at that lower water. And then when the tide comes in, the fish are going to that spot. Because so, huh. it's the deepest. Yeah. It's just a matter of really paying attention and looking at everything. I heard you mention one time, I think it was on Tom's show, about snook. You were, someone asked, you know, why are these snook hanging on the potholes? And for obvious reasons, you know, you mentioned to, to ambush bait fish, but you also said because of um, parasites on their belly? Yeah. Um, fish don't like to lay too much in grass. They're just, it's like you being out in grass in the yard. You get itchy, you know, you got worms coming up, you got ants, you got all sorts of stuff that itch you. Whereas you lay down in sand or rock, it doesn't happen to you. The same thing happens in nature with fish. They want to lay on the bottom where there's hard hard shell or crushed shell or sand because they don't have the parasites in there. Normally, their smallest scales are on their stomach. Right. So that's where the parasites are going to enter and get in under their skin. Unless they're feeding, then, they, then they'll be over on well, the yeah, grass. Yeah, right, but they're moving, around. they're moving. They aren't but, laying there. But okay. when they're hanging out, sleeping right. or resting, they're over there. They want to be in open areas. How do you know that? Are you just assuming this? No, just just pick it up over the years. And Brooke's a biologist too. She helps me out a little bit. There you go. There <laughs> yeah. you go. She, she tells me what parasites or what, you know. Because a fishing even. guy can say this stuff like this, and we all believe him, but it's like until you ask the question, parasites? <laughs> really? So, yeah. How do you know? <laughs> and also snook like it because that also that sand out there, especially this time of year when in the wintertime when you get to the severe cold fronts, they want to lay there where it warms up on the bottom. So it's like being on a heating pad. Form. Right. Hmm. So on a given day of fishing, you're thinking of what? Like at the beginning of a day and you're going to fish in the back. How do you make your day? I have a plan and I usually stick to my plan. The I night before you I make that plan? I plan my fish and I fish my plan. That's how I work. But on the way over, I don't care about tides at all. All I'm looking for is water level. So as I'm running across Florida Bay, I want to know how many barnacles I can see on the bottom of the markers. Am I looking at three inches of dark barnacle? Am I looking at a foot? Okay, is the water high? Is the water low? Okay, if high water and it's windy, you get a lot of current. Okay, a lot of push. So that's going to change how I'm going to fish that day because I'm going to be fishing areas that has a lot of current. If it's low water, I'm not fishing areas that are like basins with no water moving in them. I talked to a lot of people. We went up there and we saw fish. They would not move off the bottom. So you need current. We need current. You need because otherwise the fish lay there and as you pull over them, they blow off. There's nothing to hold them there. They're just right. waiting. Okay, so I just I go to more edges where there's flow. 
backside of basins. I fish the windy side of a lot of flats. I don't fish the leaves. I fish the windy side. And why is that? Because more current, more movement? More current, more <laughs> baits getting pushed up in there. The wind's moving water. Right. And fish fish can handle water. They could care less if it's moving at two miles an hour or 10 miles an hour. They just lay there. Right. Okay. And the more water moving, the more food coming in, the more opportunity for them. Um, do, do most tarpon lay up into the current, into water? That's falling yes, at their face. Yes, pretty much all fish. Isn't that I think obvious? otherwise you're going to be. Well, no, I, I get that. But what I'm saying here is how often my entire life, I always, when I saw, a, a, would see a laid up tarpon, but let's just say you're in a basin like at a slack tide, okay? Uh, there's no current. Do you find a tarpon laying up when there's no current, when there's no tide? I do, and but they, I, I move the channels at that point because tarpon come up and they start moving around on the surface or subsurface when there's no current right. in deeper water. And I'll fish those fish because now they're active because they don't have to worry about a lot of current and they're looking looking for food. Right. Well, I've always thrown my fly if at the fish head on or mm -hmm. slightly off tw the 12 o'clock position. But last year for the first time, Fishing with Jared Raskob, there were fish laying, you know, in the opposite direction in deep water. Mm -hmm. And he said, take that fly and throw it 20 feet over their head, right over their head. Let it sink to the bottom and bring it back, you know, to us. Right. I've never fed fish like that until last year, 40 years later. But it makes sense when they're laid up, they're having, you know, they're looking for bait coming to them. Right. How often do you fish for tarpon like that? I fish for them quite a bit like that, you know, and, and what I do, I, I, I look at every fish is it's only a 30 degree angle off their head, either side, left or right. That's their zone. They're going to eat in the more you can get that zone, you know, compressed in a 20 degrees, 15 degrees, the better off you're going to have getting it. And I like, like Jared does, I'll throw out there, let the fly go down and I'll let it sweep. And I say, throw 15 feet past down, the line, past the fish in this line. We do a count, you know, we let it come in, come in, come in, come in. And you can see the fish just sit there and it'll turn and come up and, you know. Just like it. the Atlantic salmon swing fly. Yeah, pretty much the same thing. Fish, well, fish are fish. <clears throat> yeah. So with that being said, with bait fish not wanting to swim into the current like a shrimp or whatever, how often do you target your redfish or snook bringing the bait to their faces instead of taking the bait away from their face? Or does that matter? No, those fish are different from tarpon. So... I tell a lot of my customers, you hit the fish on the head. I want that, I want the fly or whatever it is, six inches in front of that fish, right there, right now. Does the landing of the fly under the water bother them at all? It can if you're not a good caster. If you know you how to hit it too hard. Yeah. If you know how to produce the cast, lay it out there, you hit it and you don't you don't strip it real fast. You just sweep it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that fly hits and it's gonna go by him. And the fish has to make a decision. I'm gonna eat that or it's gonna get by me. And nine out of 10 times they eat it. Yeah. It's almost like if you make a real soft, open looped cast, so it's not turning over hard, just past that line. And before that fly hits, your stripping hand, you start to slide that fly line back. So once that, that fly hits the water, it's already moving. Mm -hmm. So it just already naturally slides past his well, face. That's what a butterfly casters never let go of the line. It's always in control, always in your hand. As your fly is hitting the water, your trigger finger is already out. Right. Your hands are together and you're ready. You're sliding. You're ready. It's like they want to spin a rod and keeping your bail open. You mm -hmm. aren't going to do anything. So be ready. Have, have the, you know, the line ready to go. Well, I remember, I remember when I was fishing with Eric Herstad around Flamingo on, on cold winter days, he would say, don't. He never has great luck or success when it's a head-on shot at those tough redfish when they're acting really spooky. He said, always cross them so both eyes see the fly yeah. right in front of them, right? And you get that right. reactionary right. bite. Yeah, we, that, throw, we throw over their head a little bit. And cross know, them. And just come right up on them. You know, it's either they're going to spook or they're going to eat. It's a right. whatever. Do you, do you think a lot of those bites are from uh, a reactionary bite versus a feeding bite? And all of a sudden, it's there and they just like bite it to get it out of their face? It's a reactionary bite for feeding for food. but what it is fish are just they're just creatures of opportunity if something's there they have to make a decision am i going to eat it or i'm going to wait another three hours before something swims by me again so in most cases if it's a right fly the right presentation or lure they're going to eat it hmm. what's your toughest fish personally 
probably permit. Yeah, well, just, okay, just, let me ask that question again. <laughs> What's your toughest fish besides the permit? No, um, it would either be a tarpon or a bonefish. You know, really? Depending. Yeah. Snook and redfish, I don't have much problem with. I can, I can produce those pretty good. Yeah, I see that. You know, but the bonefish, I mean, you can make a good cast, but if it splashes wrong or something, it's too hard. It's too hard, you know. Yeah. And tarpon, if you... You hit them on the head, or you're too close to them, or something happens. It's it's over. You know, uh, in that scenario, I think the biggest mistake people make when they're tarpon fishing is that they throw the fly to the fish, and that's the biggest difference between tarpon, your redfish, and snook. Because redfish and snook, you want to go after them, mm -hmm. but a tarpon, you you have to allow the fly to get there without him knowing how it got yeah, there. Yeah, it's a completely different presentation. But but bonefish is pretty similar in that if they're tailing, you get that fly real close, and when when they look up, there's the fish. Or the yeah, fly. if they come out of the mud after they tail, right. the best thing about bonefishing you know, back in the day when we had big bonefish, they were mudding. I would tell my customer, throw right now while his head's buried and he's got the mud. As soon as he comes up and clears the mud, there's going to be food right there. Right. So we try to throw and get to throw the right fly. It's not going to hit too hard, right presentation. Right. And you could get those big fish to eat real quick. I have a question. In those slam tournaments where you have to catch tarpon, bonefish, permit, you know, snook, redfish, whatever, do you base your day around, you know, looking at the tides and say, okay, this species is going to be great for this tide? Or do you always kind of say, in the morning, we're going to go looking for tarpon? Well, mostly tarpon in the morning because I want the lower light, low, low light those, yeah. those fish feed. And then we can fish the permit, the bonefish, snook redfish all through the course of the day. You know, tarpon you can too, but they just, you have a better it gets harder chance. Later. Yeah. Anything, you know, nine o'clock and prior, you have a much better chance of getting the tarpon. Right. You know. How hmm. many secrets do you have up your sleeve that you've never told? Just a few. <laughs> i never counted them you know it's just it's just, it's just but quite a few i mean do you share secrets with like uh your young son-in-law richard black yeah we talk quite a bit and he fishes a lot like i fish and we'll talk about the same lures and flies and what have you you, you probably held a bunch back until they finally got married right no no <laughs> well i really didn't know him that well until right. they got married started going out yeah. so i just fished against them in tournaments and what have you so yeah. you didn't help him when he was growing up and starting to become a guide? You no, didn't help him at all? Not at all. Really? He was all on his own. Wow. He was a great listener. He would listen to everything. Wouldn't open his mouth, just absorb all the information. You know? And he has a great attitude, so he got the fish with a lot of different people. I Yeah, I find, you know, and I can't wait to do a podcast with him because, look, a prodigy is somebody who's extremely talented at a very young age. But along the way, they do have mentors because you can't reinvent the wheel every day and all of a sudden have a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. You have to have information coming to you. But the prodigy has the ability to process that information. This is true. You so, know, yeah. I don't care who you look at. Uh, like Nikki's mom, Chrissy, at 12 years of age, 13, at 15, she, was, she beat the number one player in the world. Yeah, she had that ability, but she also had her dad teaching her, you know, the the cardinal rules of tennis mm -hmm. that we have we have uh, in fishing. Did you have that mentor? Was your dad that mentor for no, you? No, my dad, he strictly went out there for meat. He mm -hmm. went fishing just for food. Who who did who helped you with these finer skills of We had different uh anglers within the South End anglers that I fish with or what have you. So the anglers would, would help the guys. Yes. The yeah. older anglers. Yes. And they would teach you the tricks, or what, what was going on back then. And then you got to have a desire too. You got to want to do it. Right. You know, and you got to say, hey, it's blowing 20 miles an hour this weekend. We're fishing. I have to learn how to fish because the fish aren't going to quit eat, you know, right. biting. You don't get paid unless you go. Right. And the fish are going to eat when it's 20 and they're going to eat when it's five. So. You know, learn how it all works. Yeah. I remember you know? uh, one of my best fish was taken in uh, the President Bush bonefish tournament. They had a really beautiful trophy for the largest bonefish. And uh, Kevin Guerin, they caught, um, he and Dan Root caught an 11-3 that first day. And the second day, and it was gorgeous, beautiful. I wanted to win this trophy. I was so, I wouldn't, I would have jumped off a cliff for this thing. And uh, Bobby and I get out there, and about 9.30, it starts raining so damn hard. I mean, it was just pouring. But as you mentioned, the fish don't know anything about weather. They're, they they got to eat. They're mm -hmm. going to be up in the skinny water. And I said, let's just go to where the big fish swims. 
Uh, long story short, we had rain running down the cracks of our ass and we were shivering and nobody was out there. And, you know, we, we ended up catching a nice big fish, but some of my better days have been with terrible weather. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be there, but a lot of times that's when your best fishing is, you know, that low barometer. And, uh, it's just like down in the lower keys when sometimes you get, you can't fly fish. So you go net a bunch of mullet and just go mohawk them. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned from Mark Roca. Yeah. Like the snottier the weather, the better it is dead baiting, you know, and the water's muddy and churned up and there's white caps and this and that. And you can catch an awful lot of bonefish and or permit just dead baiting them that way. You know, it What's, works out. It's a very effective technique. What's the percentage of flies versus artificials that you throw? I Well, I throw mostly in the backcountry, probably 80% of my customers are throwing artificial. And then of the 80%, that would probably be about 60% of my clientele. And the other clientele, probably 30, 35% would be fly. And then mm -hmm. have a few that we just go out with bait. But I hardly ever take bait. It's got to be a pain worrying about keeping them alive and finding good bait yeah, and buying you know, bait and yeah, exactly. nonsense. I mean, I'll go out and put some shrimp in the ice chest, you know, in a plastic bag, and that's about it. Just to tip <laughs> it, you know, right. if, it's, if it's not working for us. But Right. I was going to ask, how frustrating is it? Because, you know, you fished Florida Bay and Flamingo in the 70s and 80s. But it seems like now that, you know, with this, the turtle grass die off and the degradation of, you know, the environment, it seems like it's just there's small areas that hold a bunch of fish and a lot of these areas around the buttonwoods and in certain areas just don't hold the fish they once, you know, the fish it once had. Is it is it frustrating to go in these areas and having 15 boats in the same spots or do you find fish throughout? Now, we've we've isolated our fishing to specific areas and people know those areas because now there's GPS and everything else. They see people fishing. So back in the 70s, we could pretty much go anywhere and catch snook, redfish, come over here and catch bonefish, do all sorts of stuff. Every flat had fish, every single flat. Florida Bay had all the grass in the world. You had all the pinfish, you had the shrimp, you had the crabs, you had pilchards, you had everything back then. So we didn't have the skill back then, we had archaic tackle, but we caught a lot of fish. Now, we don't have the grass. When the wind blows, we have a weather event. Florida Bay comes to a mud hole, and now you're what I used to, call 90% of my spots I could fish. Now I'm down to eight to 10% of them. Okay. This is because there's nothing there. And those spots do have some grass or what have you that'll hold fish. And hopefully you have water clear enough. You can fish them. Right. You know, but it's, it's crazy. Now this people have no idea what Florida Bay used to be like. How do you target black drum in these tournaments? Um, there's def definitely areas where they school up. There's a lot of black drum. And then a lot of people, if you want to use a shrimp to catch a black drum, it's the best way to do it. A lot of people throw out and let it sit there right in front of them. And I don't do that at all. I want my shrimp moving. And the, you'd be surprised how aggressive drum can be. So you throw it out there and they come up to it and you pull it away and kind of jig it away. And they, they come up and they, they smash it. So they don't just sit there and, you know, nibble at it and everything kind of else. So. But they're man. only in certain areas. Well, yeah. You know, especially in the summertime, we're fishing the Hermel Lucerne. You know, there's four or five places back there in Florida Bay that hopefully you scouted and know where these schools right. are, you know. How long will you scout uh, prior to a tournament? It, it depends. If I have customers, I'm always scouting because yeah. we'll fish half a day pretty much and then we're exploring half a day different spots. You right. Know? So when you explore, are your anglers fishing or are you just no. looking for fish? No, they're fishing. Because I would think that just prior to a tournament, you'd, if you have fishing for a fish that doesn't travel much, Unlike a, a tarpon, maybe like a redfish and a snook, they don't travel much. I would think that you would scout, but not fish. You're just looking for fish, but you don't want to bother them because the next oh, day you're out there. No, in those the particular fish. spots, we're fishing, but if we catch one or two fish, we're out of there. Yeah, we don't pound the area. <clears throat> we'll go in, check it out, especially on bonefish. When I'm fishing bonefish areas, we don't even cast at them. I just go in there. You want to leave them alone. You just want to find them. Yep, yep. And just, and just look slow. for them and pull off and they're nice and easy. And they just kind right. of swim off. They aren't spooking. Yeah. Because I know that uh, talking to uh, Mahaffey on his podcast that he did with us, they would fish the same tide, um, you know, a week prior and, and, and a month prior, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So they'd fish all the same tides leading up to the tournament. Um, so like when I was fishing the tarpon terms, I was fishing 40 and 50 days a year. 
but I wouldn't fish maybe the four or five days before the tournament because a five-day tournament is exhausting. But tarpon swim and they move. They're migrating, they're swimming down the beach. So I was never really worried about catching a fish on the ocean the day before a tournament because that fish, without being caught, is going to be up in Key Largo possibly. Mm -hmm. You know, so the dynamics of a fish movement has got to be imperative. It'd be, uh, it is. Snook don't move as much as... Redfish move quite a bit, though. You'd be surprised. They push on and off and across channels of different flats and everything. And, so, and you and you understand that because one day they're there and the next day there's no fish at all? Well, that's not no fish at all, but... Remember, Brooke's a scientist. <laughs> no, but you'll, you'll see... You'll have Less. 30 shots, 40 shots on this flat, you know? And next day you get there and there's, you're only getting 10 shots. So then I'm like, all right, well, let me slide over here. And I slide over here, and all of a sudden, lots of it. fish. So now I picked up a pattern. These fish are moving from east to west, west to east, north to south, whatever it might be. So we have fish moving. So, and fish always move at night on the full moon, and especially snook and redfish. Is that because of the big tide? Big tides, and they're in and the lots clo of light. cloak of darkness. I mean, we'll we'll get out there and we'll get into spots where we're catching 35, 37 inch snook big female snook they come out of the golf and you'll fish them for a day and they're gone interesting and they've moved they've moved on and you gotta you gotta know their movements and how they move and how what basins they use and mm -hmm. what channels and and you can pattern them pretty well almost like uh like mule deer hunting mm -hmm. you know you can pattern animals yeah, they're, they're all creatures of habit they'll come in in those areas as they're coming in you have to know are these fish in a transition period or are they here to feed and stay now and how do you know that difference other than just fishing them for you know, a long just period of time? Just how they're moving and what, what color they are. And what causes that movement? Like a moon, like a big moon. Yeah, big moon, exactly. What, what do you mean wind. by what color they are? Well, like with the snook, when they first come out of the golf, they are so yellow on their fins and just silvery. Those fish haven't been there but a few days, and they're just traveling through. Right. You know? And then you get to other areas, and all of a sudden you have dark, dark snook, you know, really black backs, dark... And their fins are a little tattered from being on the bottom. Right. And redfish are the same way. Redfish coming word. out of the golf, real silvery, real beautiful. Nice. And then you get up on the flats, and they have a much darker back. And you know, let me different. ask you this: When you see a string of tarpon on the ocean, you know how some are black back, some are brown back, some are silver. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask that same right? question. It's a, no, it's a perfect. It's a great question. Do here. you believe the same thing follows suit for that? Like those. Well, well, what is? Well, I'm sorry, I cut you off, but but uh, ask him. You know why is that one fish a brown a brown uh, back tarpon and the others are, are black? I think on tarpon when they're migrating, the the further you know they come down from Miami Fort Lauderdale, they come out of all the cuts and they're coming south early in the season. I mean we used to fish Ocean Reef quite a bit, and the largest schools of tarpon I've ever seen are in the afternoon up there, and there'd be like six to eight hundred fish in a school. It's a black ball. Mm -hmm. three times the size of the lot my house is on and it, they would just come down they come down so slow but i think once they get here now they go to the bridges and they hang out okay and they're meeting up with other fish coming down and those fish may not have near as dark a backs they have silver backs because they're migrating the other fish have been at the at the bridge for a day or two or a night whatever it might be feeding so they've kind of acclimated their color to their environment right now those fish mingle at the bridge and now they want to make a move because the fish bounce from right, bridge sure. to bridge to bridge. Right. So now you have migrating fish coming down fresh, mingling with fish that have been there a day or two. Resident fish. And now they're all going to move together, whether it's a five a five fish school or a 20 fish school right. with different color backs. Because I, I would uh, I'd have this presentation and when I was fishing the golden fly with Paul Tejera periodically, northbound fish, every once in a while you'd see a really brown backed fish and i came up with that term that if they're high and brown they suck it down that fish is going to eat your bug mm -hmm. and the black back fish don't they're harder to feed and i kept thinking maybe this was a fish coming from somewhere in that colorization and i finally thought that might be a florida bay fish that ended up on the ocean because it was a lighter color browner fish like we see in the, in florida bay that's back there in the mud and obviously those fish like to eat. Mm -hmm. And he just got lost, came through a channel, and all of a sudden he's heading to Key Largo with a bunch of other traveling blackback fished. I agree with Makes that. Makes sense? Yeah. And I think the darker the back, like you say, they don't want to eat real well. They're sitting at the bridge or sitting in a channel, sucking down crabs or shrimp or 
eels or whatever they want during the night. And like, we don't have to eat during the day. I got enough food in me. Whereas the other fish is like, I'll eat anything that comes in front of me. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And also it happens to be if it's how close to the spawn you are on the moon. Because those fish want to tank up really good. They're hungry. Just just before they're spawned because they're going to run offshore, spend two or three days out there to do their thing. And they aren't going to eat anything out there. What's your take on a uh, palola worm? Why do you think tarpon are so immersed in and determined to eat as many of those worms as they can? I think it's just a high protein form. I just want to suck down as much as I can. They would eat the same thing. If we had a shrimp hatch or a thousand shrimp going through the bridge like we had in the 60s. And they're and easy because they're floating on the surface. They can't get away. Right. It's just the same thing. It's just food is there and we can go. And they, they know too. Like that night, there's going to be a right. warm hatch. So you don't think it has anything to do with fertility? No, I don't think so. I think it's just there's food there, a lot of food, a lot of uh, protein. Mm. Yeah, right. it makes I mean, it makes sense. But but also too, it it might be nature's way of saying here's your food source, knowing that you're going to have a big couple of days out offshore in 400 feet of water. Exactly. It's just like it's why, nature's way. Why why does our mullet run coincide with our tarpon run? Same time, you know. It, it all happens and the shrimp runs come out of the bay and er, you know late winter early spring and the tarpon you know eat all those things before they come down right so they have enough food enough energy to make it hmm. so you got to chow before they hit the road and start yeah. traveling i mean yeah. you know if you had to ride your bike from here to jacksonville <laughs> right you aren't going to leave here on a granola bar you're going to have something <laughs> you're going to eat something really big to hold to hold you over how do you feel about the theory that a lot of our Key West fish um, are coming from Cuba with the Gulf Stream and the larvae of the bonefish? I think uh, a lot of those fish are spawning. I don't, well, I think some of our fish come from there. I think most of our tarpon come from Hoposasa. Are you talking about no, bonefish? No, no, I'm talking about bonefish, the new oh, generation bonefish. of bonefish. Yeah, yeah, bonefish all come from Cuba and yeah. Mexico and the whole Caribbean right there with the currents. So. Right. Go on with your tarpon theory. I'm interested in that. Well, the way the currents work, and we have a countercurrent, an inshore versus the Gulf Stream. So we have a south and north current, okay, but we also had a stream. And the, and the tarpon go offshore in Homosassa in the Gulf, and they spawn. Well, then those eggs come up, and they float on the surface, and they're coming down the west coast of Florida, around Key West, the loop of Key West, and coming back up on the Gulf Stream here. Well, that's taken days and days, if not weeks, for that to happen. So then we have to have an east wind to blow the eggs from the Gulf Stream in shore, okay? And then we have the countercurrent that'll bring them up, and they go up the coast or down the coast, you know, depending on which side they're on, and they'll wash inshore. And one thing I learned about BTT, that when we have hurricanes and big storms in, in let's say, September, October, we have a better... Uh, juvenile tarpon hatch because of the way the eggs move in. Right. And I think the same thing happens with bonefish. Right. Except that we don't have enough food source for the bonefish. And a perfect example is what happened back in Irma in 2017. Irma hit in September. The redfish were spawning offshore in August, September. When Irma hit, and it hit on the, it crossed over, you know, from the Atlantic side to the Gulf. The way the rotation of the wind was, it pushed all those eggs in out of the Gulf inshore. Okay, right into the mangroves. Okay, and we had a tremendous juvenile redfish hatchery in September, well, let's say 2018, the end of 2018. We had eight and 10 inch long redfish. And I think we also did not have a lot of juvenile, or we didn't have a lot of fish that ate those larvae. We had hardly any jacks, any ladyfish, barracuda, all that. Because I think they all got killed or they all got pushed offshore. So now the last three or four years, these redfish have been growing up, and now we have 26 and 27-inch redfish that we're catching regularly back in Florida yeah. Bay. Yeah, It's yeah. all from that, and it all has to do with a weather event. So yeah. um, I'm very big on those. It's a, you know, as long as the destruction is not too bad, hurricanes and fires are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, Unfortunately, the West has too many, you know, with a lot at the uh, expense of people in their homes and you know yeah well man got involved in it and yeah you know we're screwing up everything we can yeah well tell us about that funny fishing rod story you just told us before we started recording because i'd love to hear that again this this is a weird story but years ago i was fishing the bay bone tournament which is the first week or two of october we're down a marathon i'm fishing with joe vira bonnie chris and uh joe has to put his rod down it's it's too rough We, we can't we can't sight fish so we're dead baiting 
or what Mark Croke and I call booger fishing. <laughs> <laughs> booger fishing. Yeah, because you got to put the little pieces of shrimp above the hook. Anyways, um, he's down. He puts the rod down. He goes to take a leak, and a bonnethead shark comes up right to the side of the boat, grabs the shrimp, and takes the rod and reel. So it's a little custom-made rod I made with a stellar reel on it, and it skips across the water, and it's gone. Joe feels bad. I go, Joe, it's not a problem. I told you to put the rod down. You know, no big deal. 30 days later, Richard's down. My son-in-law, Richard Black, is down in Marathon fishing the red bone, looking for bonefish. And he pulls by uh, on a flat, and there's a rod tip sticking up out of the water two inches. And he tells his customers, hey, I know whose rod that is. And they go, bullshit. You don't know. I go, no, I know exactly whose rod that is. He reaches down, picks it up, and it's my rod with my reel. Now, the odds of anybody finding that rod are pretty extraordinary. Take it that Richard, someone I know, gets the rod and gives me the reel back. It's like yeah, it's 10 trillion to one. That's you know? unbelievable. <laughs> so that's, you know. We had that happen to us. Um, we had a brand new Hardy rod. It was a prototype. I gave it to Dustin Huff. Tarpon rod, 11 weight. And he gave it to Diego Rullier to test. And, um, and his angler, Pete Giampoli, was fishing with it and had a big tarpon up next to the boat. And you know how tippy the super skiffs are. Um, Diego jumps off the, the, the tower to help Pete land this fish and knocks Pete, uh, you know, out of balance. He drops the rod, fish sw swims off with the fishing rod. And his reel is a reel that was given to him. And it's something on the bottom of the reel about about the gooch or something. No, it said G spot. G spot. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So he gets knocked down. He loses the rod. He loses the reel, and Pete's all pissed off because he loses his reel. And now Diego's all pissed off because he's got to replace the rod to me or to to Dustin. And Dustin calls me. Diego calls me. I said, No worries. We'll we'll get more. You know. And we were down there, Nikki and I, uh, in the same area about what a couple weeks, two, two or maybe three weeks later yeah. fishing. And we're running down the ocean side and, and here's this fishing rod. No, know. no. It, something was sticking up out of the water. Well, I go, look I'm at saying, that, Dad. That's what I'm saying. You know, Nikki, it was sticking up the tip. Mm -hmm. And Nikki goes, Dad, look at that fishing rod over there. I said, that's just not a normal fishing rod. That's got a T-bore reel on it. It says G-spot. Yeah, you knew <laughs> exactly what it was. Yeah. And he goes, get the hell out of here. We went over and pulled it up, and there it was. Yep. I mean, it's just freakish how it, yeah. it's gone. You will never see that rod 99.9% .9 of the time. Right. It's just by chance uh, you have a lucky star over here on that day. Um, what? How would you explain to somebody listening how great the keys are even though it's not like it once was how much joy do you still uh retain fishing here on a daily basis i would say it's still the greatest place in florida to fish and speaking to other people around the state of florida florida bay the keys has the most fish of any part of the state and with accessibility to all these different spots so i say as bad as it is it's still very good fishing if we don't have a weather event, you know, we have the right weather, the right light conditions, and the fish are happy. So I would still say, it, you know, on a 1 to 10 of all the parts of the states, it's still an 8 or a 9. Right. No, I agree. And the, but see, we have a perspective because I've been here for 40 years, not as long as you, um, a little bit longer than Nikki. But we have a tendency, just like living in Aspen and seeing the new influx of people in Aspen, it's like I keep having, having to remind myself, hey, Forget what we once knew and go out there on a daily basis. Let's just go fishing and enjoy what we see today because it's, it's the doom and gloom can get a little bit overwhelming at times because we're comparing numbers like, like we knew so well so recently. Um, but I think, too, that's one of the reasons why I kind of got out of tournaments because the whole tournament feel kind of changed like with the bonefish tournaments, but you're still involved with all the tournaments, right? I still like tournament fishing. I still like the competition between it, but it's nothing like it used to be. We don't have the numbers of anglers. Um, the way we fish is different from years ago, but it's still fun, and I still have my customers that want to fish it. But uh, it's it's crazy that how people get all upset, other people pulling it close to them, and I'm like, listen, we're all trying to make a living out here. 
Right. So when I'm fishing Florida Bay and I'm fishing redfish and snook or what have you on the flats, and people pull within 100 yards of me, 50 yards of me, I don't get upset because they're just pulling, just like I am. It's not like we're running fish over right. and blowing them out. And they'll turn and go that way and I'll go this way. And we're all just getting along and trying to make a dollar. So I don't, right. I don't get all shook up and beat up right. and everything else about that. But I did. I watched a TV show you did in uh, in Flamingo, and I couldn't believe how intense you were on the boat. I mean, you were oh, one o'clock right there, two o'clock, oh, little. Oh. I mean, you were intense, man. Well, I mean, do you ever yell at your customers? I don't yell. We just have loud discussions. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just it's to me every day. It's it's a team event. I'm trying to teach them how to catch fish and show them a good time. I can't go into your office and learn how to practice law or be a surgeon or accountant on the first or second day. I'm not gonna be any good at it. So why should I expect someone that comes down here for two or three days out of the year to be a world-class angler? Mm -hmm. So that's that's my attitude about it. So I'm always telling them, this is what you did wrong. This is how you improve. Next time we have this situation or similar situation, this is how we're gonna approach it. This is what we're gonna do. So I'm constantly talking to my customers, mm -hmm. you know, letting them know. You know, I have a great return customer base. I don't yell, but it's just, but it is intense at times because right. you can go 20, 30 minutes and not see a fish. And all of a sudden, there they are. In the back of my mind, I know we have a four or five second window and it's going to be over. So it's got to happen now. Right. And if they're just nonchalant trying to do it, I'm just trying to pick them up. You know, let's get, let's go. We got to do it now. Right. Is there anything that uh, Richard had brought to the table? Anything new for you that has taught an old dog a new trick? Um, Fishing the golf is good. He showed me how to fish the golf in Mexico and how many fish are out there. Are you talking about Rex or Cobia or? Yeah. And you can't believe how many big snook are out there. And I how mean, far out in the Gulf are you talking about? <laughs> you go, Where exactly? The coordinates. You go a ways. You go no, definitely go no a ways. No kidding. Yeah. And so what are you looking for? Structure that yeah. he's found? Yeah, he has. He has 10,000 numbers. Really? Where do you find those numbers? I mean, how do you look? He's nice. Everybody gives him numbers. He, right. He's a nice kid. Question. He gets a lot of them, commercial guys and stuff. He's He knows. And he, how big it, are these snook? Um, you can get them up to 44 inches. 20-some pounds? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they, they lay out there, and they're just monster snook. Can you sight fish them? No. No, they're on the bottom. A lot of these 20 places. feet of water? How, how, how deep? Anywhere from 12 to 30. Oh you know? my God! And the schools of permit out there is incredible too. I mean, a small school is maybe 150 fish. A large school is over 500, and it's just a massive ball of them. I think I, Richard Stanzik does that too. The the kid, but anyway, Nick. no, no, R Richard. He runs a bay boat over uh, from yeah. Mary's. Like Richard went out in the golf the other day, fishing 10 pound test spin with jigs, and they got over a 50 pound king. Wow. In 12 feet of water, and they got yeah. three fish over 20 pounds. And there's not very many people fishing out there, are there? No, no. So he knows where to go, what to do, how to do it. Right. You know, he tells me, like, use this bait or use this particular jig and do this. And this Does that spot. inspire you to get uh, to fish the Gulf a little bit more often? I do, just when it's calm and nice, you know, right. we have the right conditions. It's just hard to go out there in the Marquesa. You know, you're always watching the weather. And making oh, God, sure, I hate that. You know? The thought of sinking a boat well, freaks me out. Well, I'm not worried about sinking the boat. I'm worried about the boat going down. <laughs> the Hell's Bay is not going to sink, right. but it's going to go down. To, and there's a lot of big sharks out there. God, there's big sharks out there. But he'll he'll tell you, like, look for the sharks. So are we talking about a mile or are we talking about five miles? Yeah, multiply that by about three to ten times. Are you kidding me? 50 miles. Yeah. You know, 50. 50 miles to find these fish. Mm -hmm. They're safe. They're safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to catch one of those things. But, you know, they're they're out there and they want to eat. Right. Else. And it's amazing how many how many bull sharks have Kobe on them. Wow. So, yeah, you just look for What a big, sight. Yeah. It's cool. Really cool. That's so amazing. That's a whole different fishery out there. And I never, I'll fall in the water all I want in the Atlantic. I will never want to go in the water in, in the Gulf. Right. That's a whole different deal. Those fish will eat you. Not to mention the size of the Goliath groupers out there. We were out there two weeks ago, and we stopped. With, we're, we're in the bay boat, his bay boat. And he goes, you feel that? And that Goliath grouper just ate the electric. And we wait about three minutes, and boom, he eats it again. He goes, he's under the boat. Linda catches about a four or five-pound mackerel and gets it up. And the Goliath grouper 
is every bit of 450 pounds. And he comes right up on the surface and sucks that mackerel in right off the surface. And you, you look at him two feet off the boat. Then he swims back underneath the boat and waits there until you catch another fish. They're like pets, but they're massive, massive uh, you, animals. You know, I was out there one time with uh, Andy Novak, who owns uh, LMR Tackle. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a TV show back when I had a little series. And we were out in the Gulf of Mexico, and he had this wreck. And we were trying to catch a big Goliath grouper, but it kept breaking us off in the, in the structure. So I'm a cameraman, and I, Kevin Tierney, said, let's go take a look at them. I want to see what they look like, you know. So I got a dive mask on and some fins, and Kevin was down there filming everything. And I get down there, and I'm pretty close. And all of a sudden, this Goliath grouper, you know, tips up like this you know, off his back end and opens his mouth like he was going to eat me. And I got, oh, my, I came <laughs> into the boat like Daffy Duck. You know, yeah. It's like, oh, oh, I got to get the hell out of here, man. It's a yeah, frightening and, sight. And they boom underwater so loud. Right. So, and the big groupers have a truce with the sharks. They don't mess with each other. Like a fish, a fish over... 253 pounds, that grouper is okay with a 12-foot bull shark. That shark will not touch that jewfish. I wonder what's the uh, the deal with that. I don't know. I think the jewfish can actually harm that shark. They have a mouth big enough. And, and when that shark gets close, they, they'll tell you, the boom they put out underwater, it's like a bass drum going off. And what is that boom? That's a warning. Like, get away from me. But yeah. what produces that boom? I don't know. It's a oh, guttural. Really? I don't know what it is, but it's, it's you like, can hear it on the a, surface down there everywhere. It's like it's like a like a like a groan. Yeah, it's like a school of drum, but yeah. magnified oh, gotcha. yeah. two hundred times. You know, right? It's just one big boom. Oh, that's cool. It's pretty cool. It's yeah, pretty, I'm in. I want to go know. see all that. Yeah, but that. if you're you know twenty pound permit or a little cobia, gone. It's gone. You're you're bait. You know, mm -hmm. you're just food out there. Wow. Well, what do you have to um, to to bring uh, from this point forward? What would you like to add to this conversation? I just like, you know, I like my fishing. I like the way I fish. I don't use a lot of plastics. I use a lot of jigs. I hardly ever use plastics. I use something that people don't see or fish don't see. So I, I go outside the box. And I, tie, I tie my own jigs. Just because everyone else is throwing plastics, you yeah, don't want to throw plastics. Yeah, exactly. You want something different. Right, something different. And I can work the water color. I can work it from the bottom to the surface, depending on how hard I want to retrieve it to speed or how high or low I want to hold my rod. Right. So I can fish the whole entire water column. How many other people fish like that? Richard and a couple other people. And that's Not about many, it. though. Yeah. But it's cool how many fish eat jigs. It looks good. And the way I tie them, they have a lot of crystal flash and right. what have you and it look good i'd also think too that the fish aren't seeing uh, a jig uh, as often as they are the plastics so that's, that's what said. Yeah. yeah exactly and once again you can put it right in the zone you can drop it down right in front of their face you know or you can keep it right up on the surface you know right. depending on what weight jig you're using and they throw real well too right so you're a big jig fisherman, aren't you, Dad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is going right over my head. Yeah, yeah. yeah you should yeah. see me throw a spinning rod. No, a yeah. bait caster. <laughs> oh, my God. Linda's very, very good at bait casting. She? She's really good at it. Yeah, she does it a lot. So she likes that. I'll tell you a funny story about uh, Jim Bokar. So I'm fishing the bay, the bay Bone with Jim Bokar and, and Harry Spear. Okay. And I think it might have been the last practice day or the first uh, tournament morning. We've got a school of bonefish coming that kind of spread out. And Harry says, okay, guys, go, you know, thro throw it in there. And obviously, Bocar's going to cover the left side. I'm going to cover the right side. I've only thrown a spinning rod like twice in my life. And I, th I throw this shrimp right over Bocar's line. Fire came out of his <laughs> eyes. He looked at me and said, don't ever fucking do that again. <laughs> I reeled it in and just went and sat down on the cooler. <laughs> And I, I knew I knew where my place was on that boat. My best line was we're we're fishing a slam in Key West 15, 20 years ago. And we're pulling up on a school of permit that are all floating up, spiked up. And I tell the two people, like, throw right in them. I want you to hit the fish. Just throw right in the middle of them. One person throws 20 feet right. One person throws 20 feet light, left. I just 
look at them both and I go, why are we even here? I just turn the boat around and we go back out. <laughs> like, if you can't make that shot, you oh, got to do it. Man. Like, come on. You like, got to pick. Why are we even here? <laughs> you you got to pick your anglers a little bit better. You're not, <laughs> so, uh, what are your chances so, of having to throw well, to one fish out there? They, get, the they get so nervous. I go, it's just another fish. Just because it's a permit doesn't mean it's not going to eat. You know, just, just hit them. You're going to force it right in there. They're all in there. They're going to eat it. Have you seen the um, the learning curve rapidly um, get steeper with a talented person uh, that that fishes a lot, or some people it takes like forever and they just can't improve? Yeah, the skill level of anglers today isn't anywhere what it was in the eighties, nineties, and early two thousands. So just, people want to go out and they just want to throw out a line and catch fish. They don't care about. They don't practicing get, right exactly you know you spend thousands of dollars to come to keys you get a hotel room you're eating you know nice restaurants everything else and you get out there and you flub all these casts and it's not you know you don't have to spend two hours a night doing it but you can spend 10 or 15 minutes you know practicing your casting getting the release on your finger get your spinner rod down or the fly rod how you want to do it you know that's how i learned how to fly fish i mean Chico showed me a lot and other people, then I just picked it up on my own. I got the timing down and got your hands working right, you know, 10 to 2, clock it. You know, it's a big slide. If it's a small cast, it's not. It's, otherwise, it's a big right. slide. You know, it's like throwing a ball. You can't throw a ball from here to there and expect to go across the infield. You got to come back and you got to throw you gotta it. You got to throw it with a big stroke. Right. So you can't fly fish like this, you know. So it's just all these little things. Right. How, so, do, you, how do you do the splashless cast? That's. Uh, it, I, I can't explain it as well as I can show it to you. It's just a hard throw. It's a very quick, hard throw. Like throwing a hard dart? Yes. It's a sidearm cast, and you got to watch it. You got to have good eyes because you got to be able to see your lure or your whatever bait you're throwing. And when that thing is six inches off the water, you hook your line. And all it does. It, Meaning you stop it with your you stop index it with your finger. finger. And you drop your rod tip a little bit, and that shrimp or lure goes, and it just falls straight down. So, and so, then, but but it's a stopping of the rod when that when that it's a stopping bait. of the line with your finger with your finger, but you can't hold the rod right there. You got it's got to be you a little, lay it down. Got to lay it down a little bit. It's got to be a little bit of a shock absorber, right? A bungee that's... cord, if you will, so it doesn't right. flip back. It just right. goes and drops. Mm-hmm. And the best person at it is Mark Croker. Yeah, yeah. Because when we used to fish together for fun, he would throw on a thirteen pound bonefish, and he would hit it six inches in front of it, and that bonefish is like boom. Eat. every time every time yeah how imperative is that cast when you're bone fishing in these big tournaments it's it makes all the difference yeah absolutely even on redfish it's a big difference snook not so much i want to sweep it kind of across the snook a little bit because they're an ambush predator you know it's the same way with a fly rod yeah in the fact that if you throw too hard with a tight loop and it turns over too fast it hits hard so you have to kind of feather it in with a little bit of an open loop mm-hmm. and then um you know, just before it lands, uh, you have to diffuse the energy. So your back cast can be hard and aggressive, but your forecast has got to be soft and gentle. Right. And, and lay that fly in there. Right. You're purposely opening it up on the forward cast. For sure. Right. Letting it go Don't, in there. You can't have a tight loop in that right. forehand cast. Right. Who's the best fisherman uh, angler you've ever had on the bow? Well, he's used to fish with Mark Croker. He's very good. Yeah. Richard is excellent. He won't miss very much. We go out fishing together. We we only trade off when we miss a fish, you know. So he's a real good caster, real real good angler. You only trade off when you miss a fish. So yeah, like the guy in the fish, might the guy in the morning up there. <laughs> the right, guy like, in the bow is never off. Well, you guys he, are yeah, so he, good. He doesn't screw it up. He keeps going. You know. Oh, it's, that's a good way to it's put like, it. Make it and take it. You keep going. You keep going. You keep going. You know. That's how it is. So. It incentivizes you to stay up there. Exactly. Wow. And you know. You, Guy in the back of the boat's like, screw up, come on, do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't do it. That could be a tough morning if you're yeah. red fishing. But most of my anglers aren't, I don't have really good anglers, you know, because we just don't have a lot of good anglers anymore. Available. A lot of them have, have died off or just don't want to fish anymore. So it's this mediocre anglers that you try work to, on and try, try to, to get teach. better and better and better. Right. That. You know, and I think too, a lot can be learned on the internet with the casting. Now, is the splashless spin stuff? available on the internet that I'm people sure can watch i don't think so i no? think that's that's pretty well it's, guarded it's, and I, yeah. I don't think a lot of people know it i mean a lot of people 
I mean, that's a small nuance of the very highest uh, level of, of, of fishing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and fly fishing too, how to feather that fly and what that fish is doing in that splashless cast with a spinning rod. But once you do it, then that's all you do. Right. Because now you're you're fearless that you aren't going to spook the fish. You're just going to get it there. You're going to feed them. It's going to happen. So you practice that and you get good at it. And that's like any other sport. Sure. You know, you practice 10,000 times throwing a baseball or throwing a ball. Practice is like play. Play is just like practice. It just, it just works, you know. Right. And you don't get upset. You don't get flustered. You know, you're ready to go. So. How nervous would you be similar to like the Olympics right now, like Michaela Schifrin? She's been in the spotlight for the last four years. She's already won Olympic and world championship medals and every commercial uh, has got her name attached to it. Now you have that one chance. You've been waiting for four years for that one chance. Can you imagine that kind of pressure on the bow of a boat and you got to catch that fish? Yeah, I don't think it's that extreme, but it can be. But I, I tell people, listen, we aren't curing cancer. We're just out here fishing. Right. Okay. It's it's yeah, it's intense. It's great, but life's gonna go on after we do it. We're gonna go home and we're gonna fish the next day. Right. The Olympics, they gotta wait. They gotta wait forever to do it again or right. whatever. So I remember when I first started tarpon fishing, I was I was so nervous I couldn't sleep at night. And this is before I even got into the tournaments. If I looked out at around 11 o'clock at night or midnight and I saw the top of the palm trees still with no wind, mm-hmm. knowing that I was fishing with Harry Spear in the lower keys the <laughs> next day, there was no chance I was going to get any sleep. <laughs> and then you get out there and you just start shaking. It was so exciting. It was yeah. so cool. Do you have those days as a guide anymore? No. Were you no. really excited when you get there and you see that it's well, happening? Well, I'm excited, but I don't get nervous anymore. Yeah, it's not just, nervous, but it's like, oh, my God, it's happening. Yeah, well, you kind of know that when you get to the ramp and there's a lot of dew on the boat and the wind's down, like, this is going to be a good day. Birds are out flying around. Nature's way out there, you know? Right. So when you're driving a boat, you're like, oh, yeah, this, this is, this is right. it. This is it. We can produce some fish today. It's like Mike Guerin said, by the time you get to your truck after leaving the house, you feel like you need to have a shower and you've already been bitten by a mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna a good be, tarpon day. It's yeah. going to be a good tarpon right, day. Right, right, right. So, All right, anything fun. anything else we want to cover? I think we covered a good spectrum. I mean, yeah. When you guys fish spin, what pound test do you fish? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I know where you're going with this, but probably too heavy. I We fish probably 10, 15 pound braid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hardly ever fish anything heavier than eight. And most of it's five and four pound braid. Because of the castability? Yeah, castability. And you can cast smaller baits and you're more accurate with it. Smaller rods and everything else. And you can catch anything under 20 pounds right. on four or five pound test braid. It's not like the old days with mono where you get, every time you hit a, a shoot, it would break and everything else, you know. Braid's pretty durable, even the, even the small stuff. So what's your bite, your, your monofilament bite tippet? I, I step down my leader. I go from five pound to 15 pound and 15 pound to my shock. But do you use braid? Yeah, I use braid. So this All leader the off the braid. Right. But Croca won't use braid. He, he believes- does. He don't. He still uses, he uses braid. Does he? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's come so, over from the dark side. Oh, he has. Yeah. Because yeah. he was talking about uh, braid on his podcast, how mono is the only way, and fish spook off of braid. You can just see him swim around it and stuff. Mm, I don't believe that at all. I think you could use braid right to the hook, and a lot of fish wouldn't spook. But I still use mono because I still want a little bit of stretch and what have you in there. Right. So what, say that one more time. I missed it. So you use nothing more than eight-pound braid. Most of the time, yes. And then you step it down to what? What's your, say I that go more from time. my eight-pound to my knot. I use about two or three feet. 15 pound and then on the end of that i'll use my 15 18 20 inches of shock whether it's 30 pound 40 pound whatever i'm fishing for so when you're red fishing snook fishing what what's your pound test shock 30 30 pretty much for florida bay it's 30 for everything okay and that way when the fish gets to the boat i can wrap up on the mono i don't have that real thin break cutting me yeah i got something to go and it's got a little flex to it so i use i use about anywhere from four to five feet of complete leader yeah. What knot do you tie from your braid to your uh, mono? I use a, I go braid with a bimini. I twist the bimini so it's a, it's a single line coming down. Right. From there, I use a uni knot. And then I go to blood knots for the, right. for the mono you know, yeah. or that. Yeah. And it works good. Mm-hmm. The thing is, you can't pull your, your bimini down real hard on your braid because it actually cuts into itself. You can see it biting. 
So it's got to be wet. Okay. And you got, you can't use a lot of tension. Then a lot of people. So you just snug it tight. I just snug it tight. Right. You know, and then a lot of people don't know about um, line magic. So we use that a lot. What is that? No, I can't tell you all the secrets. Your dad was asking. He already said it. We'll find it. (laughs) Um, um, Line magic is made by a particular company that you spray directly on your your spool, right Mm -hmm. on the line. And it's like a silicone, but not quite all silicone. And it keeps that braid really flexible and it doesn't bind. And limber. And limber. And what I, as I'm putting it on the last uh, eighth of an inch, like I'll make a long cast and then I'll spray that on there. I'll retrieve that all the way in and I spray the spool again. Right. So you have the yeah. internal. It's called Blakemore line magic. And that keeps it real slick and real nice. Cast really nice. Even if you get knots during the day, they'll, they'll slide out. out. Yeah. They'll slide off. Really? Oh, yeah. It's just like dressing your fly line. Right. right. Same thing. You know, it's it's all preparation. Preparation is the key to catching fish. You know, right. so even even when we dress our fly rods or fly lines, we dress our fly rods because think about it, on the back cast, your rod is flexing. The guides are on top, right? So the line is rubbing against the rod. So I dress my rod also two or three times a day. Is that right? So your eye, your eye guides, yeah, yeah, and and, and or even the blank too. The right? blank, the blank, because the, oh, really? the blank, not the guides, the blank. The blank. The, yeah, up against the blank. Because on the back cast, it's just nothing but drag against the rod. Right. On the forward cast, it's perfect. Yeah, because the rod's like this, and the line's on top. Yeah, it's like right a plug now. rod on the back cast, and it's mm-hmm. a spinning rod on the front cast. Yeah. So. Wow. You know, we're running into a spot that's going to take us twenty minutes. Just pull it out, rub it down. You're done. Okay. Any uh, special hooks you use? No, just a lot of owners and gamagatsus. Do you sharpen your hooks? No, not those hooks. Those are chemically sharpened. Circle hooks or J-hooks? All J-hooks. We only use circle hooks when we're offshore sail fishing, what have you, but I don't do that a lot. Richard does that. Right. (laughs) He has all the hooks. It's all J-hooks. And those hooks have micro barbs on them now, so they penetrate so fast, but they really don't come out. You know, as easy, right? It's not like you got to pinch the barb down or anything. It doesn't really damage the. And fish. that little sliver of a barb actually works really well. It does. Now you can get that hook yeah. uh, penetrated. And I don't use big hooks. I use a lot of little hooks. Yeah, yeah. How well do uh, gurglers work for those redfish in flamingo? They work great if we didn't have so much floating grass and all mm-hmm. that. But you know, nowadays it's just hard to use them. But it's hard for a bottom fish to lift his head up all the way out of the water to eat it. But in the summertime, when it's really hot, they will eat those. It's fun. It's like using top water, right? But it's not near as effective as sliding something down in front right. of his face, right? And the thing is, you're in such shallow water; um, it's like a top water bite, actually. Yeah, if you usually hear the splash, but you see him grab it, right? If they're up there tailing, you know, eight inches of water with all that grass and weed around them, you got to have something that's up there, and you got to wait for them to kind of level off, and then you know, work it over them, right? Because when their heads down, tails up, they're just digging. Right. They don't, they don't care what's up there. So don't even very interesting. It. Well, Richard, thank you very much. <laughs> Richard? <laughs> Richard? Where did Richard come from? Well, I, think Dave, the, I, think Dave. The, I think the last two podcasts <laughs> you've called. I've been called a lot of names, but never Richard. The guy. Well, well, you now called, I guess, that, the wrong name in two different podcasts now. So, a son-in-law, Richard, yeah. Dave. <laughs> I'm so. going to call you know Richard Dave when I see him. So. Uh, well, Dave, thank you so much for you know joining us here on the podcast. And um, you know your stories are all you know quite compelling because that's a world i don't really don't know that much about well thank you for having me it was fun yeah, yeah thanks so much all right we gotta you guys do it again. appreciate it yeah all right andy yeah. And we, i gotta fish with you one day i've heard so Flash much about fun. you so i got some open dates let me know okay. <laughs> all right Nikki, all right thank you. See you thank you dave Bye. we love to fish but especially on our own and we often get overwhelmed by the magnitude and vastness of the ocean before us. We have great respect for the Dave Denkerts of our world who make it look so easy. But when you hear their story and understand the years of the work they put in, the respect we have for them is compounded. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.